Welcome to Dragon Talk, the official Dungeons & Dragons podcast. I am Greg Tito, and I'm joined by my co-host... Shelly Mazanoble. Shelly Mazanoble is here today. She's going to rock the face of your mom off. Wait, that's... I, I'm really bad at rhyming. What? <laughs> I was trying to be a robot. Oh, I thought you were being a rock star. No. No. I was trying. Beep, bloop, beep, Wasn't bloop. Very good. We are. Okay. We have Hi. a very exciting episode uh, ahead of us uh, for me, anyway, because I get to geek out a little. Yeah, because yeah. I get to talk to Tad Williams. That's really exciting. This fantasy author uh, I've been reading for years. I didn't realize years. how. Like I didn't realize that. that 1989, it I think. Was child, Greg. It might have been 1988, even. Yeah, I mean, like this is this is like 11, 10 years old. Oh. I remember riding my bike to my hometown. Uh, bookstore that doesn't even exist anymore and I was in there for like a good 20-30 minutes. Reading the book about no, not No, just it? like trying to choose what I was going to buy because I had my own money with me. How'd and you was, get money at 11 years old? It, well, it was like, like paperbacks for like five bucks back yeah. then. It was not that much. At a, oh, five bucks to an 11 year old in the 80s? That was, that's a lot of money. I know and I chose to buy a Tad Williams book well, I went to a library. Filth. Like I did. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. At that age. You know what's funny? I still had that copy. I still have that no. paperback copy. And uh, a friend of mine who is an actor uh, lives in Seattle. And I just moved to Seattle. And he was like, oh, look at looking at showing all my books. And he's like, what do you think is the thing? I'm like, you should read Tad Williams. He's really awesome. And then I let him borrow that book. No way. And it's gone. I don't, he doesn't know where it is. Yeah, he moved to L.A. He's got storage units everywhere. He's still paying for storage in New York right. City, and he hasn't lived there in like the eight years. That I thought I know, right? So I thought I had oh, that first copy. Man. It's not. I have the Stone of Farewell. I have the 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 sequel to that paperback. Still, I can't believe you've carried these books around with you for that long. Though. That's right. Yeah, all those books on my shelves are like things that I've collected my entire life. Well, yeah, it's crazy, I right? Don't, I don't keep anything. I'm like, just not <laughs> I mean, a I got, I've got all the Dragonlance novels, Do the ones that really? I read like back in the day. Yeah, with the red, You've red and green. These books from state to state. Oh to yeah, state, and they yeah. go up on bookshelves. And my wife these... gets mad at it every single time I'm that sure you're like, why are you carrying oh, these? And like, God, I will those pack books them. Are coming out again. Yeah, exactly. You know what I've learned? Small boxes, small liquor boxes. Pack your books in that because they're heavy. Because then she thinks you're just carrying around liquor. If you put in a big box of uh, books, it's too heavy and you break your back. But if you do smaller boxes, you can pack them up nice and they're like easier to, yeah. to handle that way. If you buy a lot of wine at Trader Joe's, they always give you a, a liquor box to uh-huh. bring it home in. See, that's the smart so, thing. That's the smart yeah, thing. I've got some. Yeah. You need them. So anyway, uh, I've been talking to, uh, reading Tad Williams forever and I'm so excited to be so able to talk to him. how did you find out, I mean, how did you get him to be a guest on our little show? Um, Twitter. Honestly, yeah, uh, I was re he's going back into that fantasy realm uh, that he wrote three books for back then. It was Dragonbone Chair, Stone of Farewell and Two Green Angel Tower. And that's it. He wrote went on to other books. He wrote he wrote the Otherland series, which is awesome. He wrote other books called Bobby Dollar, which are uh, like uh, urban fantasy, but like, you know, heaven and hell having a problem in 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 uh, and angels and demons and stuff. Really interesting, funny stuff. Um, but he went into different worlds, and now he's going back to this this fantasy realm and writing another series. And so I was just tweeting about reading it, and then he started retweeting it, and his wife started retweeting it, who's like his manager. Retweeting your tweet? Yeah. No way. And so I was like, oh, I, by the way, I do Dragon Talk, and I'd love to have you on. And they were like, yeah, sure, no problem. 
It was great. And no then, way. And then we, he, I had never really heard him talk about Dungeons and Dragons specifically, so I didn't, I didn't do this ahead of time because of that. And then I was like, ah, screw it, I'll just have him because he's, he's adjacent enough where it's yeah, totally. very important. There'll be crossover, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I can't wait. Wow, he seems rather prolific. He is very prolific, but he does write these really, really long novels. So they're not you get the your money's worth. You get your money's worth. Yeah, and totally. if you get him in hardcover, you can definitely kill a spider or two. Wow. They're huge. All right. Yeah. Good to know. In yeah. Seattle, it is spider season. Oh, God, it is spider season. They're, They're everywhere. everywhere. I know. Yeah. yeah. I can't <laughs> walk. I have bushes in my driveway next to where we parked the car, so it's only like two or three feet between car and bushes. Yeah. Every you day. Walk through them. Every day. I know. And I'm like... I know. I know they're on me. I know I'm bringing them into the house, and I can't find them. They're on me right now. They're on me right now. I can feel I'm loth-touched. Oh, can you imagine coming home and seeing her there? Oh, my God. Hello, Greg. I went into the crawl space underneath my house. Why? Because I wanted to store some stuff down there. What are you putting there? Your books that um, Aaron won't let you keep on the shelf? <laughs> <laughs> Ted Williams' like books. That are <laughs> with books. No, there's a whole bunch of just stuff. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, giant house spiders. Saw like four of them. Are you serious? Yeah. How big, do you keep them from getting in? They, I've only seen like one or two of them in the house. The big black ones? Yeah, the big oh, ones. That are like, oh, God. And they're, they're harmless. I didn't even know they were a thing. They're like, they're, they're not poisonous or bad in any way. They're just huge and scary. Well, it sucks to be them because yeah. everybody thinks they're gross. They are pretty gross, but you get used to them. I think I got bit by some, by a spider. I have this super itchy bite on my arm. Can you, uh, uh, pick up tables and or cars? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah, is that weird? Do you, do you find yourself swinging from building to building? Well, if I'm late and I need to get somewhere. Oh, all right. So you're Spider-Woman. <laughs> ah, I'm <in> a web. <laughs> burn the web, burn the web. Cool. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's going to be exciting. And uh, But otherwise, there's other lots of exciting things happening in the Dungeons & Dragons world, though. Not possible. It is possible. All right. What's going on? Trail of Baldur's Gate. Woo! October 6th. October 6th. Can't wait for that. That's going to be bad. I can't wait either. Yeah. Even though I have a copy. I have a copy too. I haven't got it out of the cellophane yet. It's still really... Is that silly? It better not be in your crawl space, Well, I do want... It is in my crawl space. Are you kidding? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's where all the spiders was. I had to kill all the spiders with your copy of Betrayal of Baldur's Gate. You better keep it cellophane. Uh, Well, there's also uh, D&D Beyond is out now. Have you made characters? Have you made a sorceress yet? You said that you were going to make... Drunky two shoes. I know I did. I gotta send it to you. Did yeah. you make it? I made I made Daryl two shoes. All right. Yeah, but we'll get you drunky made up yep. and good. Yeah, I'm gonna make some sorcerize. Sorcerize. <laughs> Sorceresses? Yep. Yes. Sorceresses. Uh it's very cool. You should check out D D Beyond. Uh make characters like in a that's a Oh, you're good at that. Snap. Yeah. My girls are like, how do you snap? I'm like, you just do. You just gotta have it. You, you just gotta just, have it. It's just got just in you. Um it is or it isn't. The Dragon ah. Plus, the new issue is coming out this week. Ah. You should check it out. You Bart Carroll has been sure working really hard it on it because it's the board game. Board game issue. What, what, what? I'm so in it. I'm in it. You're Spoiler in it alert. There's in, a picture of me in it. In it to win it. Yep. There's stuff about the Tomb of Annihilation board game, I believe, in there. Sure. Yeah. As well as that little thing that you're working on. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Big story. Big story. Cover model. Very cool. And then everybody can see that Ball and Greg Tito have the same hair. I don't know about that. Same hair. We have the same hair? Yes. I did that on purpose, you know. I got my hair done just like him. The god of murder. 
Nice. Uh, Forest Grade, Lost City of Omu. Yeah. For those of you who've been listening to this on or watching us on the Twitch, you know, because uh, it leads into it at 5 p.m. Yes. on twitch.tv yes. slash DND. You can watch uh, Joe Manganello, Deborah Ann Wall, Dylan Sprouse, Utkarsham Budkar, Brian Pasein, and Matt Mercer. Ooh, Adventure but... in Tomb of Annihilation, which crazy. It's crazy. They they do a very good job of getting weaving in some of the stories uh, that you will be able to experience when Tomb of Annihilation comes out September eighth in game stores. Which, if you're listening to this, it might already uh, be out. But uh, even beyond that, it's out wide on September nineteenth. Wow. So you have no excuse but to pick it up. Get in there. Jump into it. Join consume us. all of the adventure and then blah, blah, spit it back out into the world for your players to enjoy. It's going to be really fun. I'm talking to you, Dungeon Masters. I'm talking to you because you're making it awesome. Yep. Um, and then we got Xanathar's uh, Guide to Everything coming in November. Crazy. More player options, different subclasses for each one of the player classes. And some cool covers. Some cool covers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The alt cover. The alt cover is really cool. Yeah. Designed by Hydro 74. You can only get it in game stores November 10th. Pick it up. Hurry and get it because the other one sold out. Think it's the way to do it. Uh, Idol Champions of the Forgotten Realms is a really cool game. Woo! Did you know about it? Yep. Yeah. You I send, listen to Dragon Talk. You send, you, so you know. I know. You know that they, they take Forgotten Realms lore and uh, heroes and characters. You send them out on Force adventures. Force Grey characters. Force Grey characters too, right. You can play as Joe Manganiello's Arkin. Arkin the Croon. The Croon? The Croon. It's not the croon, it's the cruel. Arkin the cruel. Yeah, because he's no <gasps> ah! Oh my gosh, we have, a, we have a little baby. Come here, sweetie. Oh, 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 it's so exciting. Oh, oh, it's my baby. We're having a Quinn. Quinn's here. Say hi. Can you say hi to this microphone? Hi. Oh my god, he's the cutest thing. Isn't he the cutest thing ever? Can you do an impression of Bart? Poop. <laughs> wow. I think that's perfect. That's just Nice. Oh, I love you. Well done, Did sir. Did you have a good day? Do you know what we're talking about? Mm-mm. Dungeons and Dragons. Pretty cool. What do you think of Dungeons and Dragons? Do you like monsters? Mama. 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 The mama monster. The mama monster. Ah! All right. Well, I think this is a good time. I think we better, yeah. To throw it to a segment. Let's go. That it'll be all about stage advice with Let's Quinn. See. With Quinn Carroll. Yes, Quinn will give you advice. I will ask you all of the advice, like, uh, what is Wild Shape all about? What is Wild Shape all about? Poop. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a one note. It's, it's, it's always a joke. It always works every single time. I'm, ki- I'm not kidding when I told you. That's all he talks about. <laughs> All right, awesome. Well, we're going to uh, uh, pick our brains about all of the fun stuff. It might be lore, too. Who knows? We'll throw it at some lore. Maybe we'll learn about uh, uh, what's going on in Chult with dinosaurs. What do you think about that, Quinn? You like dinosaurs? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who's your favorite dinosaur? Barney. Oh, I, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I like it. All right, you guys are the best. Uh, we will be back with some bing bongs right about now and then uh, call up Tad Williams for an interview. I can't wait. Welcome to another segment of Sage Advice, where we uh, talk to Jeremy Crawford. Hello, everyone. About amazingly fun Dungeons & Dragons mechanics uh, and how they work, as well as some of the intent behind the design behind them. Uh, And today, we're going to talk about anti-magic fields and all of the fun corner cases of is this magic, is this not magic, 
those uh, fun rules have been around for a long time in Dungeons and Dragons, uh, and how they interact in Fifth Edition. That's right. Uh, the anti magic field, uh, I think of it as the the center of this storm of rules questions that that get sparked because since it shuts off magic, you have to then know well what is magic. And in a game filled with magic, this is a really important question. Right. And, yeah, the ability to suppress magic, dispel magic, this goes all the way back to first edition. And part of it is there so that you have some way to uh, fight back against the many powerful magic-using monsters and spellcasters that you'll face over the course of, of a classic D&D campaign. Uh, I mean, because invariably you're going to end up fighting uh, somebody who's using powerful spells against you, or you're the ones using the powerful spells and your foes are going to try to shut your magic down. So anti-magic and how it works uh, is an important question, not only for players, but also for uh, dungeon masters. And I feel like it was also like a safe haven type thing as well, where like there were many locations or fantastical worlds where you're like, all right, we just don't want fireball to be going off all the time. So like it exists in this field, you know, and then it, it kind of evolved from there into being like a thing that like uh, 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 characters could cast and, and, and do, but there was, there would needed to be some kind of reason behind a settlement that would have this field or something yeah, like that. You, and you can imagine in a world like all of the different D&D worlds, there would actually be a real pressing need for spellcasters to create some way to stop magic because uh, otherwise you'd have you know every place eventually destroyed by some terrible spellcaster who, uh, who just cast another earthquake or, or what have you. Right. So you need some way to protect a place, to protect uh, adventurers, uh, and also... Things like dispel magic, counterspell, anti-magic, uh, these things that let you suppress spells or break spells or stop them from ever having an effect in the first place also are really there so that you can have exciting wizard duels. Yeah. Uh, you need some way uh, for spellcasters to have those kinds of, uh, of face-offs uh, that we kind of hunger for, those of us who, well, we want to see those two spellcasters throw down. Well, part of that is they need some way to break each other's magic. Mm. Uh, in some way, also, if, especially if you are a, a heroic wizard, some way to, or, or cleric or druid or, you know, whatever type of spellcaster you are, you need to have also some way to protect uh, your allies and some way to protect innocents because uh, that's also a very kind of resonant fantasy trope of, you know, the, the character who throws up the shield and, you know, holds back uh, the, you know, the hellfire that got conjured up by some bad guy and protects uh, the, you know, the innocent folk in a village. You know, yeah. you want, the game needs to be able to have those kinds of, of heroic moments uh, for spellcasters. Um, and but it does lend to all these weird questions. Yes. Uh, and, and, uh, and it has for a long time. I think oh, absolutely. in every edition of the game, there's, there's been an anti-magic shell or field. Yep. And, and, and it is such a headache that <laughs> when, I was, when I was finishing the player's handbook, and I, I'd said this to the team several times, it, if it weren't so necessary because of the game's legacy and uh, because of, again, all of these story moments that we want, uh, the just game developer in me was like, 
Cut it. Get rid of it. <laughs> no more anti-magic like, fields. <laughs> you're going to be doing this for years and years answering these questions. Well, because what's funny and, and the questions, they never get me down, partly because these questions get asked basically in edition after edition of the game. It, like there are certain, there are certain like old buddies in D&D <laughs> that like no matter how many times the rules evolve in one edition to another, the same kinds of questions are going to crop up. Yeah. Um, and then again, we always thankfully have new people coming to the game who will aren't aware that these questions have been have been answered over you know the last forty years. And it's like okay, well, I, I'd now like to hear these answers. Right. These new people are saying and and it's fascinating that now that they're not you know uh, uh, writing letters into Dragon or Dungeon Magazine, mm-hmm. they're you know pinging you on Twitter uh, and getting more much more instantaneous results most of the time. Yeah. So so let's dive into Anti Magic Field. It is a spell uh, eighth level in the player's handbook that not only can be cast by some of the spellcasting classes in the game, uh, but also a number of monster abilities in the game reference this spell. So okay. it, it's actually a rare case where a spell is almost functioning like a little general rule because of the number of things in the game that, like, say, you know, this creature has a cone of anti-magic that functions like the anti-magic field spell. So you, it's like all paths when it comes to anti-magic usually lead back to this spell. Mm-hmm. Partly because we were we were very exhaustive with it. It it, it is it is one of the rare spells that has many subsections with their own little headings, yeah. uh, because anti-magic anti-magic field has to deal with. What happens if you try to target somebody with a spell who's inside the field? What happens if there are magic items in there? What happens if, like, a fireball explodes around the field? Uh, what happens if uh, someone uh, has, like, a summoned creature or something and it wanders into the field? You know, it needs to address all of these questions. So most of the answers to those questions in the spell are pretty straightforward. You know, it tells you, you know, ongoing spells are suppressed uh, inside the field, uh, and but already some people wonder what does that mean to be suppressed? Yeah, uh, because sometimes people uh, think that anti magic field dispels things, like ends them, uh, so that they're just yeah, it's ended permanently. So that's one thing I wanted to talk about right away, and that is anti magic field, like basically lets the magic take a nap. <laughs> like the magic, it goes away for a little while, but it's not dispelled. And here's the practical upshot of that. Let's say you have a spell that lasts for an hour and you've cast it on yourself and you wander into an anti-magic field. That spell is actually still going uh, on you, but it has been quieted. It has been suppressed. You feel no effects of it. But then if you wander out of the field, the spell resumes its regular functioning. And the amount of time you spent in the field is counted against uh, the duration. So okay. let's so that let's say you so let's yeah. say you have this hour long duration spell. You wander into an anti magic field and you stay ten minutes in there. Those ten minutes are deducted from that hour long duration, even though the spell wasn't doing anything. It, it basically was rendered inert, uh, but then it it comes back uh, to life once you're outside of the field, whether because you left the field or the f- the field itself ended. Now this is also true for different effects that you might conjure into being, summoned creatures. This is true for uh, the simulacrum spell. Any of these spells that have sort of ongoing durations, their effects, if those effects uh, go into an anti-magic field, they just wink out of existence. Just poof, they're gone. Mm. But not permanently. 
uh, because as soon as the anti-magic field is gone, they reappear. Uh, but again, the time where they were gone is counted against their duration. Okay. Uh, so it's almost like a temporary dispel, uh, but where you, if the, if the duration's long enough, the thing kicks back in and mm-hmm. you can benefit from it once more. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really, once you start to really conceptualize it, it's just a field where no magic can be uh, manifested. Right. It doesn't mean that the magic is still there. It's still a part of whatever it is. It's mm-hmm. just, you will not see any effects of magic when you are in within this the, the, the sphere. Right. Or the field. Yeah, and even in the spell description, it says, the area is divorced from the magical energy that suffuses the multiverse. And this is, a, this is an idea uh, I've talked about uh, at some length in the Sage Advice Compendium, the PDF people can download from our website, where I talk in greater depth about some rules questions. And I talk about that the D&D multiverse, uh, in many ways, its physics uh, are magical, uh, that many of the creatures that exist in D&D would not exist if we were trying to understand them purely from a biological standpoint. Uh, you know, the fact that a creature, a creature like the beholder just bobs around in the air, uh, has no regular anatomy, is shooting magical rays out of its eye stalks, dragons that, you know, with, with their size, how are they even able to hold themselves aloft uh, with those wings mm-hmm. uh, unless they have, you know, basically hollow skeletal scru- structures? How are they exhaling lightning bolts from their mouths? You know, it... Many of the things in D&D, if you took magic out of the multiverse, these things would just cease to exist. Right. And so anti-magic field doesn't do anything to what in the Sage Advice Compendium I refer to as the background magic of the world. Mm. That there is a, a background magic in the D&D multiverse where if you could shut that off – you would basically be undoing the universe itself. It would almost be like in the old fantasy movie, the never-ending story, the nothing. The nothing. Yeah, coming in where it's just pure annihilation because the multiverse can't exist without magic. So what anti-magic field does is it doesn't interact with that. That is like the magic of existence itself. Instead, it's dealing with magic that has been formed into a particular shape. You can think of things like spells and magic items and other named magical effects as some some spellcaster or god or powerful creature has taken some of that background magic and has woven it into this effect, like using a formula. And really what things like anti-magic field does is it, it basically introduces a bug in that formula. So like it, if you think of it like programming, it's like it crashes it. Uh, or if you think of it, uh, or to use a different metaphor, if you think of it as like it's a sweater that got woven and you just unravel it. Uh, and then, but with anti-magic field, it's neat. As soon as you leave the field, it's like the sweater <laughs> knits itself back together. <laughs> neat. Uh, and whereas this is in contrast to dispel magic, which ends spells, when it breaks them, it's just basically the magic that was woven to create that spell is dispersed back into just the multiverse itself. It goes back to being the background magic uh, that, again, suffuses all things right. uh, in the D&D multiverse. Now, uh, there are a few other things that anti-magic field does. It makes teleportation into and out of the field impossible. Uh, and also magic items, unless they're artifacts are turned into mundane objects while inside a field. Uh, so that, that flame-tongue sword that you take into the, the anti-magic field, 
it just now it's a regular sword. Yeah. So the, the sword doesn't wink out of existence. It's just the uh, the magical properties in it. It's just uh, a tongue sword. Yeah, <laughs> regular old tongue sword. <laughs> right. Uh, what about? Uh, so I think I know the answer to this question. But what about magical creatures? So things like uh, uh, dragons you mentioned, familiars, things that go into the field. They don't cease to exist. So, so again, a creature that you summoned uh, that that exists because of an ongoing duration of a spell, they would wink out for a moment because it's actually magic that's keeping them present. And okay. so, some of the some of the conjuration spells in the game will conjure like uh, uh, fey creatures or elementals and what have you, conjure these various creatures to your aid for a set duration, and then when that spell ends, those creatures vanish. So that's an example of creatures whose presence is possible because of a spell. Those creatures, while in an anti-magic field, vanish. This is in contrast to a creature that you might have summoned with a spell, but that spell has an instantaneous duration. In other words, the magic of that spell is not keeping the creature present. Essentially, it's like the spell opened a doorway, the creature stepped through, but now the creature can exist on its own. It's not relying on a spell to still be there. Mm -hmm. So that creature is not affected by an anti-magic field. It's allowed to still operate um, dragons are not dispelled um, because so things from like the call familiar spell or the uh, uh, steed spell, something it, like that. Exactly. As long as it has an instantaneous duration, uh, again, that creature isn't persisting because of a spell. The magical effect was bringing them to this world, but they are still a, a physical creature that may, may have magical properties, but doesn't. Right. It's not holding on to magic in order for it to to exist in our in our plane. Exactly. Now. There's still, though, the big question about what effects in the game are magical. Uh, because beyond spells and magic items, there are, other, there are many other supernatural things that characters and monsters are able to do. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a test uh, in the Sage Advising Compendium that uh, I've put out there. Essentially, you, you go down this list and it's the test of, is this thing magical? Uh, and again, it's a cosmopolitan quiz. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. And it, it, again, we're not talking about the background magic of the multiverse. We're talking about this sort of shaped, this woven magic that is susceptible to things like anti-magic field. So here's the test. If it's a spell, it's magical. If it's a spell attack, it's a magical. Uh, if it is fueled by spell slots, like the paladin's uh, uh, smite, mm-hmm. that's magical. So, so far the pattern is if it has anything to do with spells, it's magical. Uh, One of the other tests is does the word magical or magically appear in the description? So we very intentionally in a number of monster abilities and also in some class features uh, will put in the word magical. You know, say something like you magically do blah, 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 or you know, this creates this magic effect of some kind. So, yeah, look for the word magical in the effect itself. Uh, and and I, I emphasize this point because one of the classes that often introduces the what is magical question most is the monk. Yeah. And the reason for this is in the opening story text for the monk, we talk about the fact that uh, their key, their key energy that fuels a lot of their abilities draws on a magical energy. And really what we could have done a better job of just explaining is what we're really getting at there is it draws on that background magic in Mm. the multiverse. But 
We only consider individual monk abilities to be magical if we've put the word magic or some version of the word, you know, magical, magically, uh, in the particular monk ability. Right. Uh, and it's only those abilities that the game system suddenly sort of perks up and notices, ah, this is magic that I, the game system, now I'm talking as if I'm the game system. This is, this is now, <laughs> this is magic I care about. It, it is, again, that woven magic that can then be unraveled. Uh, and also any monk ability, like in the way of the four elements, that lets you cast a spell, well, that's also magical because, again, as it soon as... It follows the first rule from yeah, your checklist. There. Exactly. Right. Is, it, is it a spell? Is it letting you cast a spell? Is it a magic item? Is it a spell attack? And is it fueled by spell slots? But there's some aspects of, of the monks using their key energy that is specifically being able to be magic-like things without saying the word magic within them. And that's drawing on the ends. Like, it's almost like... Uh, oh, what's that word with evolution that comes that happens at the same time? Uh, Ooh, I, I'm not sure. Oh, it, but but, it, it's like they both arrived at the same uh, way, but through a different way. So spellcasters yes, yes. use the background oh, magic by getting yeah, into something. Par- parallel. Yes. Parallel par- evolution. Parallel evolution. But yeah. monks did it in a completely different way, but they're still drawing on the same source. But monks have stuff that uh, uh, may not be a, a spell-like effect. Yes. And, and again... This is very intentional because especially when characters like monks get to be uh, quite high level, they have some amazingly supernatural class abilities. And they're not creating supernatural effects out in the world, some of these class features. They're transforming uh, the monk. And the monk doesn't wink out of existence when the monk goes into an anti-magic field because, again, some of those extraordinary supernatural abilities – are there because of the monk being suffused with the background, pardon me, background <laughs> magic. Uh, this is what I get for drinking a carbonated uh, drink. <laughs> uh, back, they're suffused with the background magic uh, of the multiverse. But again, there are a few monk abilities that specifically are designated as magical. Right, and those would be suppressed within an anti-magic field. Correct. However, they are not affected by something like dispel magic. Dispel magic... Uh, has a very targeted purpose, and that is it unravels spells. And so even other things that are designated as magical are unaffected by it. Right. You uh, couldn't cast a spell on the way of the five elements or four elements effect. Correct. Or a counter spell or anything like that. Uh, well, but you could on a way of a four elements effect that is creating a spell. Oh, okay. Even yeah. though, okay. Because basically in our system, as soon as a spell is in play... The system doesn't care how the spell was created. The system doesn't care if a wizard cast it, a cleric cast it, you cast it from a wand, scroll. a scroll, or you have a class feature that, uh, like a, you know, the, some of the monk abilities that say you, know, you can spend key to cast this spell. As soon as you're casting a spell, that's all the game cares about. Oh, a spell's being cast, mm-hmm. and it's treated like a spell. Uh, again, doesn't matter where it came from. Uh, this is also true for monsters, uh, innate spell casting abilities, even though they're not described as casting a spell the way, say, a wizard or a cleric would, uh, as soon as their innate spell casting generates that spell effect, you know, their innate spell casting might let them cast fireball, for instance, or charm person, mm-hmm. it's a spell. And anything that works on spells will work on it. Uh, so that's that is an approach we have largely for simplicity's sake. Mm-hmm. We don't want people worrying about like, well, where did this spell come from? And does that affect how things interact with it? No, it's if we say when you cast a spell, 
And anything in the game is now saying you're casting a spell. It, there is an intentional interaction there in the rules. Do you need those, those two words together, like cast spell, for that to happen? or uh, it, it often doesn't... Well, the casting of the spell itself as a process is rarely relevant unless you're dealing with, say, like the counterspell. Because counterspell is yeah. actually going up against the casting itself. Uh, usually just what matters is it says, you know, you did either you, you cast this spell or you created, um, you know, this item allows you to gain the benefits of the, you know, fill in the blank spell. As uh, soon as the spell is in play, if something else says it affects spells, it can affect that spell. Even if, again, the spell came from a scroll rather than you casting it okay. normally. So in that case, when... Uh, uh Say like the uh, the eye stalks, the beholder is mm-hmm. you know doing sleep on 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 uh, your party. You could counterspell the eye stalk. You could not because they're not described as spells. Oh. Only only if the effect of of the particular ray, if a particular ray was described as uh, reproducing the effect of a particular name spell, mm. then you could. So counterspell it. Dis- disintegrate, for example. Is, it, is that actually how it's described nope, in the Monster Manor? Oh, no. so you guys were, did it on purpose. Yes, exactly. That yeah. makes sense. However, the eye rays are described as magical. Uh, <laughs> so, so not susceptible to counterspell, but they can, their effects can be turned off in an area of anti-magic, uh, which is how the beholder can right. suppress the effects of its own eye stalks. Uh, because the beholder then also has a, an area of anti-magic. Right, a large eye. Yes, exactly. exactly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right, so I feel like there's still more questions that people come even beyond all these clarifications Well, here. and there, there are some things we've talked about before uh, on this podcast, uh, like the Druid's Wild Shape. The Druid's Wild Shape is described as magical. It's not a spell, so you can't dispel it. Uh, and the Druid doesn't cast it, so you can't counterspell it. But because it is described as magical, it does get suppressed in an anti-magic field. Mm. So if, if the bear is in the form of a panther and prowls into an area of anti-magic field, poof, the druid is going to return to the regular form. Uh, and, so, and that's true of any shape-changing effect in the game that's described as magical. But some shape-changing effects in the game are not described as magical and they would not be shut off. Uh, in such a field. Now, again, people will say, well, all shape-changing is magical. And again, this is that distinction between the kind of magic as physics versus this this magic that's been woven into a form that can be unraveled. Mm. And that's, again, why we use we put that word magic or magical or magically there in those abilities so that the DM can just very quickly see, ah, okay, this now can be suppressed uh, in, in an area of anti-magic. Now, that makes sense. People who are playing at low level will probably never face any of these questions <laughs> uh, because really anti-magic field becomes a big deal in sort of mid to high level play. True. Uh, and then it can be happening quite a bit because many groups want to have an anti-magic field to protect themselves, particularly when they're starting to face powerful foes like liches and others that uh, wield you know, perilous magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, another question that comes up a lot and which actually is what sparked uh, – my original answer in the Sage of Ice compendium is, is a dragon's breath considered magical. Mm. And uh, the, the breath of, of a typical dragon is not described as magical. So an anti-magic field is not going to stop that fire from burning you uh, that the red dragon is ex- exhaling. Uh, 
What about a, I mean, similarly, but what about a uh, fireball that's cast five inches away from where an anti-magic field is? So the fireball would explode, and this is something the the spell addresses. It, it would explode sort of around the anti-magic field and just the area of the field. Uh, it's like it would it it would get shut off. There just there would be no fire there from the fireball. Are there magical uh, spells that create real fire? <laughs> Do you know oh, what I mean? So, like, boy, is there is yes. there a way that 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 a, a clever player could get around that? So any any uh, any spell that let's say instantaneously well this is funny lowly prestidigitation lets you magically set a fire um, so you couldn't use prestidigitation inside an anti magic field but you could use it right outside set a fire you know and then throw the thing and then in. throw the fire in there because right. the fire itself is not magical oh see. I feel like as a dungeon master, I would put like you know the bad big bads in a anti magic field with a ba- you know barrel of oil behind him because he's <laughs> totally doesn't think any you, right. know, you clever wizards you won't yeah. be able to do it. But good good old good old fashioned villainous hubris. Yeah, <laughs> here I am standing next to a barrel of gunpowder. There's no way wrong? they could possibly get magic fire in here. <laughs> but um bump. Yep, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, other weird corner cases like that, uh, I, I feel like there's there's tons of them for this. It, uh, it a lot of it really comes. The questions come when you get to, especially character classes like the monk, the druid, the paladin, that have ongoing supernatural effects, and people want to know, you know, are are these things magical? Mm-hmm. Are they going to get shut off? And again, people just. Just use that simple test. Do they see uh, a reference to a spell or to uh, magic itself in the description of that particular effect? And if they do, then, yep, that is that is a, a magical effect that is going to get affected by something like anti-magic field. People also often wonder what is magical when they're going up against monsters that have resistance or immunity to non-magical attacks. It's usually specifically bludgeoning, piercing, uh, or slashing attacks uh, that are not magical. And so that then also sparks the question, well, you know, which of these attacks is is magical and, and, and which isn't? Mm-hmm. Um, usually, again, it's pretty obvious. If you're making a, uh, a spell attack, that's a, that's a magical attack. Uh, and if you're making an attack with a magic weapon, that's also a magical attack. And you can you can again using the the test of you know just checking for those those keywords I mentioned you know do you, is it referring to a spell is it referring to magic, um, it's usually pretty easy to discern when you're attacking something with magic and when you're not. Okay, so if a creature uh, who uh, can only be harmed by magical weapons is in an anti-magic field and you take your magic weapon into that field. It's suppressed. It's no longer magical, so you cannot damage that creature. So you are sad. You're sad. <laughs> yes. What about uh, like uh, there, there's some things where the natural claws can have magical powers or something like that. That would also be suppressed because the word magical is in there and it acts like a magic item, and you wouldn't even be able to do that with your own. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. Yeah. If you had, if you had some ability that said, yeah, your your fists are now can are treated like they're. They're magical weapons. Uh, well, no. Not in an anti-magic field. Yeah, yeah. Gosh. All right. 
Anti-magic field is harsh. It is harsh. Yep. How do you how do you dispel an anti-magic field? You can't. That is one of the other things. Anti-magic field is immune to the dispel magic spell. Oh, man. And it's also immune to other anti-magic fields. Is it so? Is the only way to uh, it's just to wait out its duration? Your best your it? best bet is break the concentration. Whoever cast it. It's a concentration spell. It is a concentration spell. And it is very intentionally a concentration spell. For that reason. For that reason. So that it, is, it becomes one of those cases of trying to break the concentration of whoever created it. All right. So then what if or you Or just run away from it. Try to get the fight to relocate. In a different place because it's, yeah. it's not movable. No, it, uh, no. You can, you can have it on an object <laughs> and then take care of the object with you, right? No. no so, yeah, it moves with you. Uh, yeah. So it, that, it, is, it is a mighty... Terrible spell if it's being used against you. It's why it's it's why it's eighth level. Yeah, uh, this this is extremely powerful magic. I feel like in my past I have played against an evil DM who had a you know a spellcaster in the anti magic f- field, uh, uh, and then had like his familiar was the one who actually cast the spell. So we were like beating up on the spellcaster trying to break his concentration, and it, mm. it wasn't actually him who who was casting it. Oh, so we were like, "Why is this not working?" Interesting. And then his big bats came in and you know built some heavy blows until we figured it out. Yeah, yeah. But there's lots of fun. I mean, you're right. It is it is mid to high level where you start getting into things like this, where there's yes. people are flying everywhere. Mm-hmm. You you're already in like the third dimension anyway, and then this extra wrinkle of anti magic. Uh, and now we're going to shut it all off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? Because so much of, you know, especially if at high level, you know, even just with the monk or more martial characters, deal with some kind of magical prowess uh, at higher levels. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. And then again, my, my tactical recommendation is if first just try to disrupt concentration to get the spell to go away or change the battlefield, you know, move the conflict to someplace else if you can. Uh, so that you're you're not contending with this really powerful effect that is potentially going to shut off a bunch of the player character's abilities. Yeah, yeah, and not in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Although, again, it's one of those things where it's like when used against player characters, frightening. When used against the bad guys, uh, it can feel, uh, you know, like you're, oh, we're mighty. We just shut this guy down. Yeah. But it almost always backfires in those situations. Oh, yes, because <laughs> as, as is true of so many things in D&D, that amazing tool you have, well, it turns out the bad guys also have access to that tool, so watch out. Yeah. And, and uh, this, is a little, this is a little advice I would give uh, to players. Um, uh, I'm not saying I do this as a DM, but sometimes if players get really clever uh, slash uh, annoying <laughs> with how they're using a particular effect – I take very careful notes as a DM, and uh, I know many other DMs do as well, and learn how to use those tools in the same way against the party. <laughs> so I think it's sometimes good to exercise some restraint. If you have a tactical uh, group, uh, yeah, that is, that's where the fun comes, where you're like, we're trying to one-up you know, the, the, the genius. It almost becomes a chess match, yeah. uh, especially when you're fighting against spellcasters or uh, uh, things like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because in, in my home game, that kind of thing never happens because uh, the game is so story driven. Um, there are, we'll be shopping for anti magic <laughs> yes, fields yes, for a long about, time. <laughs> yes, the love of shopping. Uh, uh, I, in contrast, sometimes want to give 
uh, tactical tips to, <laughs> to the group where I'm like, oh, gosh, yeah. this was way harder for you guys than it needed to be. Some suboptimal yeah, choices. You, oof, you had those <laughs> abilities you could have used, and this would have been a cakewalk, but I keep, I keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, you got to create like a little uh, fairy creature who can come in and be like, you know, you could have done it this way. Bye. <laughs> You're like video game tutorial monster. Yep, no. Yeah. I do occasionally have – I have a few sort of mentor-like NPCs uh, whom I can use sometimes as the voice of the DM mm. who will basically point out to the player characters of like, who you really didn't use your abilities, did you? <laughs> <laughs> what have I been training you for yeah. this whole time? Yeah. 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 And I, I love having NPCs who can, who can serve that purpose in the game. Yeah. Be your voice. Yeah. 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 I like that. Now too. we're going to give you some tips. Nice. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for that uh, dive into Anti-Magic Shell. Definitely uh, has a lot of uh, information about how people can think about it and make it. And I, I keep using Shell and Field interchangeably. It's Field. Yes. But Shell has also been a name in, in the game's history. Yes. Yeah. They, uh, uh, they sometimes go hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, so how can people get in touch with you? Uh, and also, where can they find the Sage Advice Compendium that you mentioned a couple times? Because I feel like that would be a good resource. Yeah. So the Sage Advice Compendium is available uh, on our website. So dnd.org wizards.com. Uh, it's also uh, linked um, in my Twitter profile. So oh, okay, if, you vi- if you go to Twitter, um, I'm at Jeremy E. Crawford on Twitter. Uh, you'll see right under my picture, if you go to my page, the, there's always a link there to the latest version of the Sage Advice Compendium. Good deal. Awesome. All right. So uh, ask away all of your even more corner cases <laughs> about the Magic Field, and uh, we'll be back with more uh, Sage Advice next time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my that I learned about three to 55 new things. But Something. only in that range. Yeah. Yeah, I know some stuff. I know a lot of stuff. Are you nervous to yeah. call up Tad Williams? I am on your behalf. You are? Yep. Oh, I'm not nervous. I'm nervous for 11-year-old Greg Tito. <laughs> I wonder what it would be like being 11-year-old. It would be like me calling up V.C. Andrews. <laughs> <laughs> so are there f- actually flowers in the attic? <laughs> All right. Oh, I love We can channel love that. Maybe I'll just say, you know, in honor of Quinn, I'll just say like, um, poop? Poop. Poop, 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 poop. Hello, poop. Uh, Tad, we would like to have you do some poops. Oh, poop. <laughs> <laughs> no, I promise. I won't mention any of those things. We've we'll, had enough poop. We'll just talk about some very important uh, uh, stuff. So why don't we just call him up All right. and we'll, we'll get this party started. Yeah. All right. There's going to be a little bit of, because I think we're a little bit late. So we'll make sure that we leave. Let's Hello. Go. Hello. Hello, Tad. How are you? This is Greg. Hello. How's it going? You're also here with Shelly. Hi, Tad. Can you hear me? We can yeah. hear you. Can you hear us? Oh, now I can. Okay, good. Uh, sorry about being a little bit late. We, uh, you know, we do two things, uh, segments ahead of this. And then, so we always get a little bit behind. Uh, yeah, no worries. I just didn't know what was going on. No worries at all. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here and, and talking to us. Yep. My pleasure. Uh, you are being streamed live on our Twitch channel. Right. Is, it's kind of amazing. It is. It is. <laughs> I, I never get over the world that I live in. <laughs> 
Now, uh, I, I am, of course, I'm a big, big fan of all of the, the work that you have done for many, many years, but I'm not sure every single one of our listeners or even my co-host, uh, 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 you know. I've heard Greg talk about you. <laughs> your, na- his, your name did come up in a recent podcast, actually. It, yeah, yeah, I think it might have, because there's also someone in the chat uh, who has the handle of Felix Jonglur. Ah, okay. All right. That's well, I'm glad to hear it was in that context because any of the rest of the stuff, including all of the liquor store robbery stories and all, <laughs> I, I completely have alibis for every single one. That's well, good. Those are the stories we want to talk to you about today. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, but you've been an author writing in fantasy since, uh, well, I, I started reading The Dragonbone Chair and then I read Tale Taster's Song after that. But that's uh, what, the late 80s, 89, 88? Well, actually, to be completely frank with you, um, Tail Chaser was first printed in, uh, first published in 85, I believe. All right. In, in hardcover. And so that was my first publication. Nice. So that's that's quite a long career. Yeah. I, I've been doing this since God was in knee pants, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we went back and forth a little bit over email about how uh, Dungeons and Dragons was uh, at least a part of the, the cultural malaise of which you like grew from. So um, <laughs> can you uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how, how you said your, your younger siblings played Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, yeah. Well, the, again, the, the, the strange thing with me, and this is actually true even to this day, is that I tend to um, resist outside storytelling influences as much as possible. Oh, interesting. So, so um, but that's a, like a whole complicated issue. But, but <laughs> so when when Dungeons and Dragons came along, I think I was really already in my latish teens mm-hmm. um, and and was kind of in my what am I going to do with my life mode. And that included working a lot of horrible jobs. And doing various creative projects on the side. I was in a band. I was uh, doing radio. I was uh, doing illustration and cartooning and a number of other things. Writing actually came fairly late. But as a result, sort of literally from about age 16 into my mid-20s, I was like working 17, 18 hours a day on either you know terrible jobs or creative stuff for me. So when Dungeons and Dragons came along, I thought it was really interesting, but I was literally never home. You know, mm. I just couldn't find time to do anything like that, although I always found it very entertaining. And, you know, having been a, a fantasy guy since I was quite young, um, you know, it was always appealing to me. And my my younger brothers who were still in school when when all of this stuff started up um, had the the access and the time and they got quite involved. And I used to draw pictures for them of their characters and things like that. I remember doing one of my brother's favorites was his Hobbit Thief, I remember. And so I was, you know, doing illustrations for him of what that character might look like and and things of that nature. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So um, I I always found it really interesting. And I've always um, enjoyed the the idea of people making their own stories. That's been that's been a big thing for me in terms of subject of interest. And uh, I have always watched it with great fondness and with a certain uh, sour amusement when the the right wing nut lords would jump up and talk about how, you know, it was basically worshiping Satan and et cetera. And, you know, so that if if nothing else had had made me sort of feel a deep abiding loyalty to D&D, I think that (laughs) the response of some of the people to it would have done so. They put you firmly on the side of being a fan at that point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, it's, it, it, and it's 
you know, I mean, it, it, as I said, it's also it's an empowering thing. And I, I have a very kind of curious bifurcated approach on that because on the one hand i'm a writer mm -hmm. what i do for a living is tell stories and obviously there's some value to me in having a professional separation between myself and and other people just in the sense of like you know that like this is what i do for a living and mm -hmm. i i want that to mean something otherwise people won't give me money and allow my children to eat and things like that <laughs> On the other hand, though, I've always been a huge believer in in people doing things for themselves and creating, and I, I, I sometimes worry that that's something that we've lost a little bit of in contemporary society because now it's so easy to get professional entertainment of whatever kind, whereas, you know, 200 years ago, whatever, people used to play their own music, you know, they would throw their own dances, they would, you know, write long letters to each other, which would be maybe the main source of intellectual um, uh, fertilization, you know, for their, their near and dear ones. And we do a lot less of that ourselves. So, you know, anything that encourages people to use their own creativity is always going to be, you know, something that I'm really going to be in favor of. Yeah. And D and D has got that kind of built into it because each session is a storytelling, you know, uh, a sense of, of creativity. Everybody's doing it together. And, uh, there has always been this, that, uh, uh, thread of other people creating uh things that are then published on their own that aren't don't have anything to do with dungeons and dragons but feel like it's part of the the culture oh yeah well and as i said i'm i'm like a fantasy guy from way back so you know starting with when i was a kid and first was getting into comics and things like that i mean we my friends and i spent a huge amount of time sort of doing that equivalent thing in terms of imaginary adventures and what would happen if this happened and you know what if so and so had to fight so and so and you know all those kinds of things that you argue about when you're a kid reading you know superhero comics or whatever so yeah no i mean i think it's it's really one of the most fun things is to to be able to do things yourself whether with characters that you're borrowing from somebody else or characters that you and your friends are creating that's right right and it's you're right it's almost happened we, we've talked to a few people on this podcast that are Using Dungeons and Dragons for uh, so you know building social skills in yep. kids and uh, you know teaching people how to be friends or even just developing through uh, you know uh, developmental problems they may have through uh, whether it's you know actually diagnosed on the spectrum of autism or or other things. But Dungeons and Dragons is now used as a tool in order to uh, uh, you know practice that in a safe space and. <laughs> It's completely the opposite of, uh, you know, what you were alluding to in the 80s of the of the of the witch hunt about what was wrong with Dungeons and Dragons. It's almost like it has gone right. completely around. And those same parents are now saying, like, yeah, you should play Dungeons and Dragons because it gets you away from the screens. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, it is. It's it's extremely amusing, all of that stuff. But it, but absolutely no. And I think it's a really, really good thing that anything that does stuff like that and. Plus, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I love to, to see what other people do with things. It's, it's so wonderful to me as a writer. And this now I'm talking about my own stuff and veering slightly off the subject a little bit. Subject a little bit. That's but okay. One of the things that always really thrills me and just pleases the heck out of me is when someone comes up to me and starts telling me about a favorite part of one of my books and I realize that they have a completely different impression, <laughs> visually or whatever, of what was in my mind when I wrote it. You know, they, they personalized it. They, mm -hmm. they took elements of their own greatest fears, fondest hopes, whatever it might be, you know, and they turned it into something that 
I was the source material, but it's not necessarily what I was thinking when I was writing it, you know, and that individualizing of things is another thing that just has always delighted me. That's true. That's true. So you said you were a, a fan of fantasy, you know, back when you were uh, uh, growing up. What, what were some of the, the touchstones? What were your, some of your uh, uh, big inspirations there? Well, I was lucky enough to have uh, parents who read to me. And mm. so, you know, like a lot of people, it really started with the kind of the great English children's classics primarily, but not just English by any means, um, you know, because while on the one hand there was, you know, The Wind and the Willows and Winnie the Pooh and all these things you read when you're little, there was also, of course, The Wizard of Oz, which is about the most American thing that there is. Yeah. Um, but but then later on, um, I got I think I read The Lord of the Rings when I was maybe 11 and I read it before I read The Hobbit. And that captivated me just so deeply that, you know, it, it, it really guided me in in a lot of directions in terms of what what I wanted more of, you know, and other other people in the fantastic and science fiction, too. I mean, certainly Ray Bradbury and and later on people like Moorcock and Philip K. Dick and Fritz Leiber and tons of others. Mm. Um, but 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 very much Tolkien in the early days. And and in a lot of ways, I think Dungeons and Dragons was kind of a more healthy response to um, the, the, the great connection so many people felt to Tolkien. But what happened in, in my part of the field is a lot of people sort of went, well, let's write more stuff just like Tolkien. Mm. And as a result, you wound up with a kind of a, a, a vast sea of mediocre fantasy that was written in the 70s and early 80s, especially, um, that was kind of nothing more than an attempt to to just sort of churn the elements slightly and then dump it back out again and give people more pseudo Tolkien, but unfortunately by a lot of writers who probably really weren't capable of pulling it off, which was another reason that I love role play because it gives people another way of, of working with that feeling and that love for the fantastic and that love for imaginary landscapes and, and creating characters and all that without having to crank out mediocre fantasy novels, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Yeah. So I was reading on um, on your website, you, you write a lot about writing the process, which I thought was very interesting. It's probably even harder for you to talk about the writing process, but I'm going to ask you questions about it anyway. Because what I was reading actually reminded me a lot about the, like a, the preparation that a dungeon master would go through. Oh, yeah. So cause you said you spend a lot of time thinking and mm -hmm. thinking and thinking about the worlds, but your, the worlds that you create are so rich and with detail and... It just made me compare it to how somebody might approach writing their own campaign. But can you talk a little bit about how these worlds come to life for you and, and what that process is like? Well, well, first of all, I, I think that it's probably good fortune for everybody who knows me who does role playing that I didn't get into Dungeons and Dragons because I probably would have been the most uh, ridiculously over the top dictatorial dungeon <laughs> <laughs> who ever existed because I'm such a detail freak. And, we, uh, and we actually just talked to Patrick Rothfuss, uh, who, who gave a big shout out to you, uh, that, that he was a big reason why he went with DAW and uh, uh, not other publishers. But, oh, yeah. Uh, but he said the same thing. He said as a dungeon master when he was a kid, he probably would have been too novelly, novelisty, and yeah. uh, railroaded people. Absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 Patrick is a wonderful guy and a great writer. And yeah, but I think he's very much the same way I am. And I'm sure that would have been true. I'm sure that people would have fled shrieking into the streets. After <laughs> I, 
deal with us for a while. But as far as the, again, I think we go back to Tolkien. It wasn't so much with Tolkien that I wanted to recapitulate the experience when I first started writing, but it was very much that what I wanted was that feeling of otherness that I got from Tolkien, that feeling of these worlds really existing. Also mm. the best science fiction writers. I don't think there's any question that that's one of the things that people found so appealing about Dune, say for instance, mm. is that that feeling of you know old cultures and old history and how these things you know interact and 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 serve as the foundation for new stories. So one of the things I really wanted to do when I first started writing was to bring some of that into my own work because I responded so strongly to it, to that idea that these places, obviously, I knew they didn't actually exist, but that when you were immersed in the story, they felt as though they existed. They felt that if you were to walk towards the background, there would still be more background beyond it as compared to bumping your head against a painted flat and having all the backstage technicians going, what the hell are you doing, buddy? Jesus, get back on set. <laughs> so I've always made world building a very big part of what I do. And, and it's only partially... Um, because now it's expected of me. It started originally, though, just because I love it. I love that part of it. I'm a history buff. I'm a science buff. I like learning about how the real world works. And when I'm writing fantasy fiction or science fiction, then that gets translated. So it's not enough for me just to come up with a plot or some characters. I, I really have to have a feeling of what the world is that this is happening in. Um, not, not because every bit of it is going to be important to readers necessarily, but because you're creating atmosphere that informs the characters and what they do, that informs the readers sometimes almost in a subconscious way what's possible so that they can feel like, yeah, this all makes sense. Nobody's cheating the rules here to make something happen easily. Nobody is, you know, like a dungeon master, I guess, would be the equivalent be whipping something out at the last moment and going, bah, but we didn't tell you that there were the flying chocolate chip cookie monsters that are drawn <laughs> for sugar and they blah, 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 you know. Right. And people are like, what, you have, wait a minute. Everything is a deus ex machina, right? Exa yeah. Exactly. And, and so for these things to matter, the stakes have to feel real. And for the stakes to feel real, we have to feel that we understand, at least in a general sense, what's possible. So that's always become a big part. That's always been a big part of my writing. Mm -hmm. But then the other component, I guess, that goes with it in terms of planning these things is not by choice, but by, <laughs> I don't know, whatever you call it, a certain malign fate. I, I wound up being known as the writer of really big, long books. Um, I did not set out to be that person. It's economically really stupid, just for one thing, because, you know, my thousand page manuscript, by the time it's a book, it sells for the same amount as someone else's 300 page manuscript. So it's clearly not a really good use of my time. Unless they split it up into two uh, paperback <laughs> right, novels. Yeah. Yeah. Think how many movies they can make out of that one book. Yeah, well, that's the other problem. <laughs> There's the crud out of movie people to yeah. see that long. They don't even want to read them, let alone think about trying to you know, trying to uh, turn them into something. Still? But still even now after? In, I feel like they would see that. Always. I probably always will have that issue. That doesn't mean it won't happen, but it means it's, oh, it's very much an issue. People in Hollywood don't want to read. They mm. really... Don't they a, have that, people for that, though? That, I yeah, wanna... but the people that they have to read don't like to read much. <laughs> <laughs> Those people have people. I guess that would be us. That's <laughs> yeah. us. 
exactly. At a certain <laughs> point, you're talking about us, and we already know what we like. So, yeah. but, but so one of the things that that happens in in terms of making these things or writing these stories is that because they're big long stories, and because I'm now on like I don't know my fourth or fifth big multi-volume series, you learn a few things. And one of the things I learned early on is that a lot of what's really best for me about these stories arises out of the complexity. It's almost like a quantum physics issue, mm. you know, or, or a, a chaos theory issue. If you make something that's complicated enough and you trust it, certain answers, certain plots, certain characters will kind of seem to spontaneously arise out of that mess of possibilities. Um, I'm not talking about anything mystical. I'm not talking about, you know, oh, I have a muse or whatever. I'm just talking about when you get anything that, that is complicated enough and you trust it and you treat it as though it's real, it will begin to tell you you know, what's going to happen, what you thought was going to happen that now you can see would never happen in a million years, you know, and it was just, you know, like that deus ex machina we were just talking about, mm -hmm. you know, you can see that like, oh no, if I tried to do that now, then nobody would buy it because these characters, you know, that just isn't sensible right. or whatever. So it's actually one of the really exciting things. And one of the reasons I spend so much time thinking when I'm writing is because it's like playing, you know, fourth dimensional chess or something. You've got so many possibilities and any one moment, any one plot line, any one character can literally go dozens of different ways um, that it's really interesting to just sit around and just plug different possibilities in, see how they ramify out, see all the branching connections that come from those, pull that one apart, try another one. And quite often you find that, that the answer will suggest itself, something that you hadn't thought of at first and certainly didn't think of when you were outlining the story, but the, the complexity of the story has given rise to certain things that now work out and, and are like the best possible ways for that to solve himself. You'll suddenly realize, oh, that's why, you know, almost as if there was a muse involved. Oh, that's why that character came to me, because that's the perfect person who would, of course, do X, Y right. in this situation, you know. So, Did you have uh, uh, characters like that in, in Memory and Sorrow and Thorn that, that, that oh, bubbled absolutely. up from the surface? Yeah, oh, absolutely. There's For, for those who've read the books, there's a, a very – um, important character named Kadrak, who's a, a monk, who uh, in the very when I was writing the first volume of that book, he was essentially a walk in, a walk on character. You know, he was somebody who was just going to be on the stage for a few seconds. He met the main character. He clearly was a troubled guy who was having problems with his own religious <laughs> beliefs or whatever. And then he sort of walks off again after stealing the hero's purse. So. I never had any intent for him to become more than that. But without giving anything away, two volumes later, at the end of the whole series, he's one of the most important characters. Yeah. And, and that was because the second time he appeared, it was because I needed a character to do something, to accompany somebody. And I went, well, how about that monk? You know, he was just kind of sitting around and he could be in here and he was kind of interesting. And as I introduced him into the story, I began asking myself questions and saying, again, treating it like he was a real person. Why would he go along with this person? Why would he do this? And, you know, again, you begin to find out things that you hadn't even guessed at, you know, couldn't have guessed at because you didn't know much about the character. But as you create the character and complicate them, suddenly they begin to, to, to connect into the main storyline. 
Right. And that's much what happened. And as I said, yeah, he became a very important character. That's very much similar. I mean, just to the point that Shelley was trying to make with this question, it's very much like what a dungeon master does as far mm-hmm. as preparing a whole bunch of things that may happen yeah. through the course of your players making their own choices. Uh, but you can't prepare for every permutation of, of their own imaginations. And they have things that they do that, that change the story and push it in a different direction. But if you have that kind of thought of this may occur in this world. So having like a general knowledge of the world uh, allows you to, to improvise and then all of a sudden it becomes an integral part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and there's a, I'm, it's just, sometimes people ask me, um, you know, when I'm out doing readings or whatever, and they'll say, well, do you ever have characters who don't do what you expect them to? And I, I always tell them like, absolutely. You know, mm. there will be, let's say for instance, you know, you have a character that you've You've basically told yourself, okay, two volumes from now or a volume and a half from now or whatever, this character is going to have to jump out in front of the main character and take 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 a spear. You know, he's going to die so that the main character can live and it will be noble and heroic and tearful and blah, blah, blah. So you plan this for yourself and then you go on with your story. But of course, if that character's death is going to be meaningful, you have to introduce them long before that. They can't just show up at the last moment. So you make them part of the story. And as you make them part of the story, you learn about them and they participate with the other characters and all that. And then you finally, a year or two later, you get to that point that you'd been thinking about and that you'd prepared this character for. And the the, the other character, whoever it might be, is about to throw a spear at your protagonist and you're saying, okay, now it's time for that character to jump out and you know sacrifice his life. And you suddenly realize that essentially that character is standing there saying, I wouldn't do that in a million years. <laughs> the hell with you, buddy. You know, that's not my character at all. I wouldn't take a spear from my mom, let alone this. <laughs> at which point, you know, you better have some other characters sitting around yeah. that you haven't done anything with lately, you know, and that you don't mind because, you know, that's again, that character has developed a reality of his own. Sometimes it's a her own. And um, they're not going to be the one who's going to jump in front of the spear anymore. So, yeah, it, it, it can be extremely frustrating. But as with, I'm sure, a very good Dungeons & Dragons campaign, it can also be amazingly rewarding to discover things you hadn't even suspected yourself. Yeah. Yeah, those are the ones that are the fun ones when you're like, I didn't plan this. I didn't have right. any kind of pre-thought about it at <laughs> all. But it happened in the moment, and I'm kind of happy with how it goes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, with again, with writing, the 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 thing that you're trying to do, at least that I'm trying to do, is to keep that air of spontaneity that you mm-hmm. have in a, a role-playing game of some kind. That air of, like, I don't really, I as the reader stroke participant don't really know what's going to happen next. Yeah. And what whatever it is, then, that it feels organic, you know, when it does happen. But when, one of the ways you do that is you, you know, as I mentioned, you let characters take on personalities that, you know, you hadn't necessarily planned for. Or here's another good one, and I, I don't know if this is a Dungeon Master specialty as well, but you write yourself into corners deliberately. You put your characters in a situation that, like, you cannot off the top of your head see any way they can get out of. Um, and then you try and think of a way to get them out of it. And one of the reasons that's a really satisfying thing to do as a writer is because most of the time, you know, if you figure out what the character is going to do ahead of time, you're going to telegraph it. 
you know, and it may not be all that interesting a solution. Whereas if you actually put yourself in this situation, where it's like my manuscript stops dead here if I do not get these characters out of this bad situation. But I literally don't have any way of doing that right now. I have to figure one out. And that comes through in the writing, too. You know, those kind of crazy things that you just didn't expect. But that seemed very satisfying because it did look hopeless. And then, boom, you've pulled something out that actually doesn't feel like cheating. Yeah. <laughs> When players actually come up with solutions to those problems, you've 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 painted them into a corner, and that's where it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I wish I had players. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of do your character, yeah. except for you're playing all of the roles. Yeah, I'm playing all the roles. <laughs> I'm sure that there are some of those very smart readers out there figuring out things I didn't figure out. Unfortunately, I don't hear about it until after the book's been published. So. <laughs> so I also felt a special kind of kinship with you because my mom also used to make up songs about Winnie the Pooh. Oh, how nice. Yes. Really? Yes. No way. Yeah, like always about like what, like trying to get me to do things, but it was like Winnie the Pooh telling me to do them. (laughs) She was, my mom's a really good rhymer. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, we kind of have a family thing going that way too. And, and, you know, I, I, my mom, I believe was the one who kind of first introduced it, but I definitely have carried it along with my kids and, and they kind of do things like that themselves. And, you know, it's leaving aside the matters of, of role playing and writing novels and all that. I mean, it's just a part of, giving people another way of looking at the world or interacting with the world that I think is super important for kids, you know, Mm -hmm. just, just, you know, lifting things up out of the everyday occasionally. And if it's a silly little song or if it's a game or whatever, you know, you're besides just having fun and making things more enjoyable for everybody, you're also teaching kids how to think in a different way. So, you know, sounds like your mom was pretty cool. Yep. She's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's valuable, you know, not to get too uh, uh, current eventsy, but like it's very valuable right now to think about what it, other people feel like uh, yeah. in situations. Yes. Empathy, empathy is very important. Well, and you know, I, I that has always been a big thing with my writing. I think even as I've gotten older um, and as I've been writing longer, I have gotten more and more and more away from in most of my work of the authorial voice. I almost never use it. Um, meaning I almost never take that kind of godlike third person uh, of somebody who can see everything and who is talking to the reader. I will occasionally do something like that where I will actually have a character telling the story like right. in my Bobby Dollar books. But generally, um, I, I, I'm kind of more interested in hearing how the characters see things just because it is a way – it's kind of a kaleidoscopic view of what's going on. You get all these little pieces and each one is somebody somebody's subjective version of what's going on around them. And it's so much to me, it's so much more interesting than having a writer sort of stand back like God and tell you what's happening and tell you how to feel and tell you who the good guys are and the bad guys and the this and the that. Mm -hmm. Instead, you just, uh, what I like is, is you just get introduced to a ton of different characters and you see all parts of the world through them, but you see them in a very subjective manner. Yeah. And I think you and uh, actually you did it first, but then I think it was a, a kind of shift in fantasy where there was this idea where there's several point of view characters uh, in a novel, uh, in a fantasy novel. And you flipped around to different point of view characters. And I was, you know, uh, when I was reading The Dragonbone Chair and, and, and uh, all, all those, no- I, I noticed your 
nomenclature in the uh, uh, splitting up of chapters. So if it was the point of view didn't change, but you wanted to show time passage, there would be like two carriage returns. And then if there was a, a point of view shift, there was always like a little symbol in the in the center, which, right, right, which right, changed right. all that. You know, and I, then and then nope. uh, what's that? I just said, I'm glad you noticed. Yeah. Well, my, my, my 11 year old self uh, noticed. And then I was like, oh, that's how I'm going to write my book. And then, you know, I never actually <laughs> wrote that book. Uh, but we'll talk about that another time. Uh, but, right. Yeah. But there's the idea that, like, each one of your, 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 your uh, characters always were speaking of the things that they knew uh, uh, with the knowledge that they had with them. Right. And I thought that was yeah. very role playing y because there were, there were, there's definitely characters uh, who meta or players rather who who meta game. They they know what's happening, yeah. Uh, yeah. or like what the overarching story in Tomb of Annihilation is, our, our, our storyline that's coming out. And so they'll, they'll kind of use that knowledge to 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 help their character make the decisions that are going to make the plot better. You know, but right. it's something you always try to work against at a yeah. at a role playing session because it kind of ruins the fun a little bit, or it can ruin the fun for for certain types of players. So. You know, it's, 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 I, I, can you talk a little bit about like what it's like to be a point of view character and, and, and how you use that throughout your, your writing? Well, what, what you're talking about is very much, um, a, a function or a, no, it's not a function so much. It's a, it's a byproduct of writing contemporary fantasy and, and or science fiction or whatever. Just consider that a given. Yeah. But it's very much a byproduct of writing contemporary fantasy because, over the over my writing lifetime, let alone a longer stretch of time, over my writing lifetime, we've seen a huge concentration and a not a stratification, but a ramification of um, fantasy fiction, just for instance, this is true in most other genres as well, but into into smaller, concentrated subgenres where people will tend to read only the kind that they like. So you'll get, you know, the, the, the vampire dark fantasy folks, and they will not tend to be as interested in some of the other things. Or you'll get the urban fantasy folks who are very, you know, influenced by Neil Gaiman or, or whoever. Or you'll get, you know, the people who are more standard fantasy types who have lots of D&D influence in their work. I'm thinking of somebody like Stephen Bruce, um, mm. you know, and who, by the way, is a great guy and would be a good guest if you ever need somebody. Nice, um, will do. His work originally spun off from from role playing games way back in the day. Mm -hmm. But so, you know, as people get more concentrated in terms of what they read and read a lot of it, you're you're virtually always these days as a writer playing against the expectations of the readers. These are not ignorant readers by by and large who have picked up this one fantasy novel and are judging it, you know, according to the entire world of their experience No, what you're getting a lot of times are fantasy readers who have read literally hundreds of other fantasy novels have seen huge varieties of tropes and how they are dealt with and you know the kind of things i was alluding to before oh and here's this character in a terrible situation hanging upside down in an old well that's full of you know, slime snakes or whatever, you know, and their hands are tied behind their back and they have no weapons. And how are they going to do this or that or the other thing? And as a result, they are, excuse the noise in the background. No worries. As a result, the readers have seen these all before and they are never, never, never going to not be. All right. You can hold that. You can hold on. So we wait for the, the, the sound to go by. Yeah, I think it's gone now. Okay, good. The readers are never, never, never going to be ignorant. 
they are always going to have read some variants of these things, maybe dozens of variants, and they're going to be trying to outthink you. Just like you mentioned, the kinds of role players who are, you know, D&D players who are, they know some of the meta stuff about the game. Mm -hmm. Fantasy readers are, believe me, I say this with love, they're the worst because, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they they have just read tons and tons of these kinds of, of, you know, this general kind of book going back to Tolkien or earlier and yeah. read everybody and they read all of George's stuff and Patrick's stuff and my stuff and everybody's stuff. And as a result, that then becomes another part of the writer's approach is that you have to play this game with that group of readers, which is a large, significant group of not simply telling your story, but telling your story in such a way that you're not going to reward them that you're going to, in fact, not punish them, but but trick them occasionally or catch them flat-footed or, you know, double, you know, backstep them or whatever, you know, lots of jukes, lots of, it's, you know, it's like playing a professional sport. You're trying to, you know, keep them from feeling like they know what's going to happen. So it gets really complicated because you're not, then you're not just doing all these other things of telling a story, but you're also going, ah, oh, crap, but every single reader who sees this, who's read a whole bunch of other fantasy is going to assume it's something like this. And they're kind of close. So how do I push them off so that when it does happen, it still feels like a surprise, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so you're, you're, you're dealing, and I think increasingly in, in, in any kind of writing or entertainment, we're, we're, we're seeing that everywhere. We're seeing that in television. We're seeing, you know, we're in the postmodern generation. We're in the, the, the metafictional era. And there is no such thing as uh, assuming you've got an ignorant, not ignorant in a negative sense, but, you know, an audience that doesn't already know the subject material. Right, right. That's interesting because, and you're, and, and the, the experience that I had, you know, 12 years old going into a bookstore in my hometown and picking up the dragon bone chair, totally like on the blue, like, Oh, I'm just going to read this book because it looks cool. Right. You know, and not having that huge history of of fantasy behind me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's rare. There are still, you know, you still do find young readers, but more and more. Yeah. There's an entire industry out there of, of writers and readers and everybody who are throwing these tropes back and forth. And of course now we have, you know, uh, worldwide in- instantaneous communication. So it's not even just the people in your own language. They're throwing these things around anymore. They're being tossed around all over the world and yeah. people are sharing them with each other and getting online. And I, for instance, you know, I, as you may know, I'm just writing this new series of Ostinard books, um, which is, you know, the first time I've gone back to that for like 30 years. Yeah. And even my own website, you know, even tadwilliams.com, that that the the message boards are full of people guessing about what's going to happen next and, you know, what seems significant in the first volume and what they think about this one. And I literally can't go near that. I can't, I can't even read. I mean, it should be the most fascinating thing to me in the world, but I don't dare. I don't want to be influenced. I don't want to add another layer of trying to outguess my readers into what I'm already doing. You know, I mean, just, you know, then, then you wind up responding. Somebody guesses something that you've worked really hard. And instead of going like, well, that's one person and they don't know that they're right. You're going, oh crap, I have to change it. You know? Yeah. Right. That would be my problem. I would be like, no, they guessed it. No, no. I couldn't. Well, and I probably away. would too, Shelly. I probably would too, but that's one of the reasons I just stay away. Yeah. You know, and I warned them. I said that. I said, you know, I'm really thrilled you guys are talking about the books and you're excited and all that stuff. And 
if you have a specific question you want to ask me, ask me, but I'm not going to come haunting those particular parts of the message board because I just don't want to start that interaction of, of me listening to what you guys think is happening and letting it affect what I'm doing. That's probably pretty smart given, given what's happening today. But, uh, well, you mentioned, you called it Ostenard. It's self-preservation. It's self-preservation. You, uh, it, see, that's the first time I've heard someone pronounce it correctly. <laughs> I always thought it was Ostenard yeah. with a AU, not a, a Osten. So now good. Now I know that. It can really be. I mean, I, I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm not a fanatic about how people pronounce things. My own publishers used to say things like, you know, that guy whose name starts with a P, you know, <laughs> who can keep track of all this stuff? And right. whenever people come up and talk to me about my books and they pronounce a name a different way than I do, I, I, I don't correct them. I just, you know, because like I said, it's. Uh, it, people personalize these things. Sure, sure. And that happens in Dungeons and Dragons all the time. Yeah. We have so many different, you know, proper names that are pronounced differently and monsters who have different things. The one that got me recently, I've mentioned it a few times in here, Sahuagin. We used to be Sahogwin is how I thought it was, but oh. you pronounce the ooh as the a ooh again. Sahuagin. Uh, Sahuagin. I'm like, that's such an interesting, more better way of yeah, pronouncing it's actually, it. Actually, wow. No cool. offense, but it is a little better. It is better it's than Sahogwin, which. Sahogwin. Yeah. Too boring. Um, but. <laughs> Uh, I want to ask you, uh, Tad, about uh, uh, Orlando Gardner in Otherland, uh, mm-hmm. because so much of what he uh, experienced in the, M- uh, you know, your, your version of what an MMO would be or what an MMO would become, rather, <laughs> uh, was was fascinating to me. Uh, and I think it uh, I, even people here in the Twitch chat have said like that you were uh, uh, thinking about how online gaming would evolve before you know, the internet even was, was, uh, as ubiquitous as it is now. Um, well, there, you know, I normally, I kind of tend to, um, to downplay, uh, stuff like that, but in, in, a, in one sense, it's true. I really was doing this stuff quite early, not because I'm just a brilliant, lovable person or anything. <laughs> that, that too is true, but be, no, because <laughs> Uh, I was actually working at Apple in the late 1980s. Um, it was my last normal job before I quit to become a full-time writer. And I had originally started there working in what was called the Technical Information Library. And we got very inf- interested in trying to – this. so mind you, this is like 1987. So we got very interested in trying to put some of the information into visual form, which obviously could be very useful when you're showing engineers out in, in com- computer stores how to fix things, not just – text, but actually putting in, you know, videos and things like that. So that was a very big deal at the time. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, we're talking 40 years ago, well, 30 years ago, whatever it was. Anyway, um, as a result of that, um, I, myself, along with a, a friend who later became a business partner, we got very interested in this stuff. And we started going to all the conferences at the time when people were first doing things like, um, developing the data glove that was Jaron Lanier and VPL and, uh, or JPL or whatever it was and, and various other things, you know, the beginnings of hypertext, all this stuff. It was really early days and I got fascinated by it, but making a long story short, what I realized was what I really wanted to do was jump straight forward into the future 20 or 30 years like now and be able to actually use these things and do these things. But it just simply did not exist at the time. It was all speculation. It was the very earliest, you know, wireframe and polygon stuff and very hard to have more than one person in a virtual space at a time. And, you know, um, fascinating time and, and, and very f- 
fundamental to what is going on now, but very early. So in part, the other land books were written because I wanted to be able to do this stuff and oh. I couldn't do it. You know, we, I mean, I would have these ideas. And in fact, my, my friend and I did, we started a, an interactive television show, which is a whole other long story I won't bore you with, but it, you know, <laughs> it was quite interesting and odd that nobody else was something nobody else had done. And we kind of were fascinated by this stuff, but I was frustrated by the early nature of the technology. And as a result, Otherland came in large part just because I was already thinking about what could be done with this stuff and really wanted to be able to do it. And one of the things I wanted to be able to do, you mentioned Orlando. And for those who don't know the Otherland books, they, they take place sometime in this century, roughly, probably 30, 40 years from now. Um, and Orlando is a teenage boy with progeria, which is premature aging sickness, um, which at that point they still have no cure for. So he's basically under a death sentence. He is housebound. He is, um, you know, his body is failing him fast, but he is um, huge on the role playing parts of the Internet, especially in his particular world, which is an, a, a kind of sword and sorcery fantasy adventure where he is. Thargor the Barbarian, you know, the king badass of the whole thing. And, of course, that in and of itself was fascinating and fun to write because I was thinking, you know, when I was a kid, if I could have walked into a Conan the Barbarian world, you know, <laughs> and and lived in it, what would I do and how would I act and what would happen there and how would it function? And then I was adding on the idea of like, OK, this has to have rules. It's supposed to be it's not even the most extreme tech in this book. It's just what's common commercial technology at this time. Um, but then, of course, also because of who Orlando is, because of his illness, because of his isolation from the real world, the difference, the, 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 the gap between who he is and who he pretends to be um, is huge. And a lot of strange stuff comes out of that. So all of that kind of sprang out of just my simple desire to be able to do more with the internet and with virtual reality at a time when it just wasn't physically possible yet. Yeah. Yeah. And it was fascinating to me at that time too, because I was reading it before Ultima Online occurred, before uh, EverQuest, you know, obviously way before World of Warcraft perfected those two game types. But right. those uh, uh, games were soured for me because I had read Otherland. Because oh I, God, really? I had wanted to have the Thargor, the Barbarian experience, uh, right. you know, and have to be famous in in world, but then also have uh, uh, the ability to tell the kind of free form role playing, more role playing esque stories right. that were happening in there. Uh, that MMOs, I think, early on tried to create with uh, you know being able to play or kill, for example, in, in Ultima Online, and have like that you know kind of uh, community online that actually w had rules. And Star Wars Galaxies was a big part of that too, where right. it was all about creating different ways that social binds could end. And World of Warcraft ignored all that and just told basically, they basically did like a first person, you know, a, first, a single player game with other people around it. Right. Uh, and, and, and that was what became popular. And people were like, oh yeah, we can do that really well. But it never got to me to, to be uh, what was what Orlando experienced. 
Right. Well, I, it's funny you should mention this because my son is, uh, all my kids are gamers, but my eldest, our eldest son is probably that's what he's going to do for a profession. <clears throat> and so he's always been gaming since very early on. So I've lived vicariously through a lot of his stuff. But when he first started doing World of Warcraft, again, this was one of the many things that in a different world at different times, I probably would have happily done, but I, I you know, it didn't work out that way. Um, so, but of course, I'm fascinated because I've been thinking about this stuff for years. So, you know, my son would be playing World of Warcraft and I would be standing over him and going like, well, what if you just walk off that way? And you know, <laughs> well, not much happens, you know, and you go like that. And I go, well, see those people over there. What if you wanted to like just live with them, you know, just hang out with them and make a fire and swap stories and stuff? He goes, well, you know, you can learn certain kinds. No, I go, no, no, no. I mean, like, what if you didn't want to go on a quest? What if you wanted to open a store or what if you wanted to become a professional tree trimmer? You know, and, you know, and he just kind of look at me like, <laughs> Why would anybody want to do these things, Dad? What is wrong with you? That's the point. You know, it's like I as soon as I see a place, I want to know where are the boundaries. I want to know what can't I do and go bang myself against that thing, you know, and just try stuff. You know, I, I would tell him, go start some rumors, start rumors, you know, tell people that X, Y, Z is happening. And he's going like, no, you don't. you know, that's not really fair. I'm going, I'm not talking about fair. I'm talking about <laughs> This place needs stories, you know, not just the online stuff about how easy it is to kill this and that a character, but like, you know, stories about haunted places that may not actually exist, but people can go look for them. And, and he would just go, ah, dad, you don't get it. So, yeah, you know, that, that's very much my experience too, is that I've always wanted to, to, you know, try and find ways to break down the paradigm even farther and, and, and literally have like a second life type experience, but in a fantasy very wide open fantasy setting, you know. Do you think there's any uh, way that VR and the way that's becoming more uh, accessible to people that we, we'd get something like this? Oh, I think ultimately, yes. It's only a question with any of this stuff. I mean, somebody said this to me just the other day. They said something about, well, you know, yeah, and I really liked your Otherland books, although obviously VR didn't turn out to be that big a thing. And I'm going like, what are you talking about? We're like in the super early days of VR, you know? I mean, we're, we're not even there yet. I mean, we can't, we can barely replicate, you know, 20 seconds of lifelike experience, let alone go live somewhere mm. so long that you accidentally forget to eat and you die, um, you know, which is, that's the mark of, I don't know if you'd call it success, but that's... <laughs> The that's the goal of, of all game designers <laughs> is for their yeah, players to die. Yeah. You know, that's the mark of the paradigm shifting where people <laughs> actually forget that they're living in another world because it's so realistic. So, um, yeah, I think all of this stuff is possible. And I think that there's just a, a kind of unguessable scale of adventure touring and and world travel and then, of course, just limitless um, uh, invented universes that, that people will be able to interact with and that people will be able to have full surround, you know, spy adventures, or, you know, if you want to be the baddest ass cowgirl in the West or whatever, you know, and you'll be able to go live in that. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's just so obvious to me that the technology will continue to improve. And as it, what it means is that continuing to improve means continuing to become more like reality. So, yeah, you know, I think it's going to happen. And the only question is, is, yeah, is how are people going to interact with something that separates them so much from the real world and what problems, but also interesting new things will come out of that. 
And I think your series does it in a good job. It's not necessarily a, a promised land. It's not like, <laughs> oh, yeah, this is going to be fine, you know, because there will be rich, powerful, lawful, evil people who will, you know, use it for their own ends. Oh, yeah. Well, and even beyond that, I mean, one of the things that I've talked to when I've been doing tech talks of various kinds or whatever over the years that I've always said is, you know, with with every big shift in technology, um, everybody immediately jumps into these two camps of like, it's going to save the world, it's going to destroy the world. So, you know, I mean, just some very mundane examples, you know, when frozen food came along, everybody was like, why would anybody ever cook fresh food again? It's such a problem. It's such a hassle, you know? Frozen food is going to completely replace fresh food. Well, you know, within 20 years or whatever, you know, people are like making their own pasta from scratch and stuff. Similarly, you know, when the synthesizer came along in the 70s and and the Mellotron and people could imitate other instruments, people like, why would anybody ever play those other instruments again? The synthesizer will change everything. And then other people are going like, it'll ruin music. Nobody will know how to play real instruments. And then, you know, there's like a folk revival within a few years after that. and, And everybody is learning how to play dobros and mandolins you know my own brothers learning how to play the mandolin and stuff what's what's a dobro a dobro oh it's it's a it's another like a pedal steel type thing i think it's a it's another sort of bluegrass country instrument my brother my both my brothers play bluegrass i'm much more of a rock and roll guy but they're like bluegrass guys nice all Um, right cool that was one i hadn't heard of yeah and and all these, um, you, you can actually hear a lot of it on on stuff like early Jackson Brown albums, actually. But that's another story. Uh, <laughs> we'll the, have you back for a for a music themed uh, information. Trust <laughs> me. No, but I mean, and, you know, and people said the same thing about television. You know, it was like, oh my God, it's going to destroy society. It's going to turn everybody into these mindless zombies who never do anything but stare at the screen. And then other people said, no, it's going to save the world because once you've actually seen wars happening or people being beat up in the streets or whatever, you know, nobody will ever be able to pretend it's not happening. Anymore. And as always with everything, the results are much more mixed much more complicated, much more nuanced, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, uh, you mentioned it with Dungeons and Dragons, you know, mm-hmm. in the early days, it was like, oh my God, this will kill our children, you know, and, and it never does, <laughs> thank God, yeah. you know, and, and good and bad come out of any kind of changes. So I feel the same way with, with VR and everything else that's going to be coming up the line. Neat, neat. Yeah, I can't wait to, to and as uh, <laughs> it's odd to see Felix Jonglor in the chat say it, but <laughs> He said it's just really being explored now, uh, and and I think I, I agree with that. Like, there's going to be something, uh, 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 you know, we're, we're going to put our consciousness up in the, in the VR pretty soon. Well, and one last thing is that one of the reasons I'm so waiting for this stuff is because since I didn't become a gamer due to accidents of working life and age and all that stuff, it's like I want to get back to the phase where I can be a gamer without having to learn, you know, how to handle the the remote or, you know, which buttons to push. You know, I want to be able to enter the game and just be me. You know, and that time isn't quite here yet. But when it is, I'll be enjoying the hell out of myself. And I will be running around being Thargor or being, you know, um, Rocket Rick Space Ranger or, you know, or or whatever, you know, handsome surf guy surrounded by babes or, you know, whatever weird (laughs) ass thing that, that, you know, be out there for poor old guys like me. Perfect. (laughs) Awesome. Well, uh, to bring it a little bit back to uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy, I'm very excited that you're back into... uh, uh, Ostenard, did I say it right? 
Yes, you did. Okay, Ostenard. Good. All right. Now, I, now I can say it the other way too, and that's also all right. Um, I'm really enjoying. I liked your uh, the heart of what was lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the interim novel. It got me back up with what was happening in there, and uh, I'm I'm reading through uh, uh, the the first book in your, in the series now, and uh, I'm very excited. Thank you. I'm I'm most of the way through the second book. I think it's even slightly longer than the the first book of the series. So yes. that's a frightening thought. Well. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure many fans have told you this in the past, though, too. Like, don't worry about the. I like long books, and I'm glad that you make long books. Maybe you should stop uh, trying to put them all in the same novel, though, and like do the, <laughs> do the six book series instead of a three book series. That might be your that answer. That has occurred to me at times, yeah. It's probably <laughs> occurred to your publisher. Yeah. <laughs> Very good stuff. Uh, how can people, I, I saw some people in the chat say, like, what was the best way to get into your books and what you do? What, what, how, what do you think? What is the best way for people to? Well, there, there are several standalone books, um, or you can start with the first one of any of the, the multi-volume series, depending on what you like. Obviously, The Dragonbone Chair is kind of the classic. Otherland is kind of the classic science fiction one. But my first book, Tail Chaser's Song, which was a fantasy novel about cats, um, mm. but not unnecessarily cutesy. That's there. War of the Flowers is a standalone. The Bobby Dollar books are quite short. So there's a number of easy ways in. Or you can go to like tadwilliams.com or any other place where people talk about fantasy or science fiction and ask some other readers and probably get some illuminating reactions that will help you make up your mind. Nice. Uh, and uh, always welcome. Are you on Twitter as well? I am on Twitter. I am on Twitter. And it's just at Tad Williams, right? Yes, I believe so. Nice. See, you're like me with just using the name as the Twitter handle. You're so clever. As much as possible. Back when I, last thing very quickly, I remember when I first got, uh, published my first book and I was thinking, do I want to use my own name? And I said, you know, it'll be a heck of a lot easier if like friends that I haven't seen since junior high school or something want to get a hold of me that, you know, if I'm publishing under my own name, it'll be a heck of a lot easier for them to track me down. So for some reason that's still in place today and... I don't have pseudonyms. I that's just me. I uh, as well as should. Yeah, I'm on board with that. I yeah. think you know, back in the internet days, there was something about having like a, a, a an alter ego that you were, and I think that was kind of attractive to some people. But there was a point in my life where I was just like, you know what, I'm just Greg Tito, and that's that's my name. Yep, yeah. sticking with it. Absolutely. And I, I think that's that's a good choice because more and more these days, the problem comes not from the people that we do know on the internet, but yeah. the right. we don't. This is true. They will find you. Well, thank you so much for uh, uh, letting us talk to you for as long as we have. I feel like I could, uh, uh, you know, regale you with more questions uh-huh. and, and pick your brain more about. I wanted to ask about world building even more and, and all that stuff. So that's my specialty subject. So we'll yeah. have to do it again we'll do sometime. A, a right? special, we should just do a special podcast just on word, world building because I had some oh, questions. I'd love to. That's I actually do seminars and stuff on that sometimes. Well, oh, 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 yeah. Well, then we got to get you in the office then. Oh. For a seminar. I like that idea. Sounds good. Ooh, that sounds fun. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tad. Uh, and uh, if people uh, would love to jump in, jump into all of his books. I'm glad that uh, some people in the chat are like, oh, I never heard of them. And I'm glad that we're, we're, we're bringing you yeah. new readers as we speak. I'm thrilled to hear it. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, have a good day. Thank you all so right, much, Tad. You guys, Tad. too. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. That was awesome. Now I really want to talk about world building. I had some questions. Too. I know. And I wanted to be like, because 
I'm totally going to dork out about it, but I uh, read his books and he has a glossary in the back of words uh, and what they, you know, like the, the it, it wasn't elvish. It was like troll words and then like what they mean or like, you know, whatever the, what the culture was and what it means in English, right? And that's how I started writing my fantasy novel when I was 10 or 12 years oh old. I took that exact list and took the English word and I made up my own made up words for it. Uh, and I was like, oh, that was, that'll be the... the you made I'm, up your own language? No, I just... It was like, oh, if when he had a noun on that list, I just made up a, another fake word that, oh. like, similar to, to, to oh what he did, right? Because I thought that's what you had to do to build worlds is you got to have a language. And I was also a, a, a Tolkien fan, so there was all that he had, basically whole other languages that he novel? created. Where is this novel? It has not yet been made, it? and that's why I want to ask him, like, can you get... Can you do too much world building or can you get bogged down in the I, world building and then never like actually... It might be, an excuse to not actually write the novel. Yeah. 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 I do that too. Yeah. Or like, you know, I've written tons of campaign backup material. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm going to start a D&D campaign and then I just get bogged. One thing doesn't feel right and then I get... Sidetracked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Write it. I need, to, I need tools and disciplines to help me with that now. <laughs> I, you got the tools. Yeah? I think the discipline I can't help you with. No, I, that's I, what I need. Yeah. Can you... <laughs> Shelly, I need you to provide discipline. <laughs> 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 this became a very different podcast all of a sudden. We, uh, we've got dungeons. Yeah, but we will definitely have him uh, uh, back. Uh, and I, uh, I got to check in with him after his second you know, book and after I read it all, so it all makes a little bit more sense. And I can ask some real uh, uh, interesting and pointed questions about what characters uh, are going to die and which ones aren't. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if he'll tell you. I don't think he will. It sounds like he, well, he might not even know. Yeah. He might not even know. up to the characters. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, thank you, everybody in the chat. You've been wonderful. Uh, yes, that is Tomb of Annihilation on the table. Somebody did ask that question. That's right. Tomb of Annihilation is going to be out very soon. We have the first proof copy here. The More will be coming soon. Only. It is pretty glorious. Uh, we are. Uh, do we have any ending announcements that we want to get to? How can people follow you, Shelley? Find me on Twitter at Shelley Moo. I'm sorry. My name's too long to be at Shelly Mazenoble. I guess it would, that's like, true. use all your characters. Yeah. 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 So I'm just Shelly Moo. You should change your name to just be Shelly Moo. Just be like, I would. Yeah. My mom calls me Moo Moo. Oh. That's my nickname. Well, that makes perfect sense now. I never I never knew all yeah. that. That makes sense. Yep. Um, you could also at Avalon Hill, too. Yep. Avalon want. Hill, the number two. Um, and uh, we'll you can follow. We'll be doing some previews there. So. Oh. For Betrayal of Baldur's Gate. Sweet. Follow, follow. I am at Greg Tito. Uh, you can follow me there. And then, of course, if you want any information about Tomb of Annihilation, go to uh, DungeonsAndDragons.com uh, or follow them on Twitter at uh, Wizards underscore DND. Follow them. <laughs> follow us, I guess them, I should say. Those d Those people. crazy people. Um, it's very Somebody exciting. Subscribe. Oh, yeah. Silent Kagamusha. Woo! much um thank you guys uh, we're listening to us in podcast form you guys are the best please uh make sure if you uh get a chance to like and or rate us on itunes that always helps get more uh people finding out about this here podcast i feel like people might in be interested in this one with uh, tad williams yeah. uh who may not be dnd fans so we might be uh, getting a whole new brand audience uh, here for dragon talk which would be fantastic yes um yes come to our side Again, Tomb of Annihilation comes out uh, September 8th in game stores and September 19th everywhere else. So look for that then. And uh, we got Xanathar's Guide to Everything coming up this fall, November 10th in game stores. It's pretty exciting. All right. I think that's it for this edition of Dragon Talk. We'll talk to you guys uh, next week. Okay. Bye-bye.